And as you're taking your seat, go ahead, grab your Bible, and open up to Romans chapter 9. <clears throat> Excuse me. Romans chapter 9. And I just want to begin by simply reading uh, the text to us this morning. We kind of paved the way last week looking at Romans 1 through 8, getting our bearings in the, the book of Romans, this magnificent letter. And Paul leaps out of Romans chapter 8 into Romans chapter 9, and here's what he says. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. You should have got a sticker when you walked in the door. We do this um, every year. We, we try to capture our ministry year theme. We try to pull it out of um, the text, the scriptures that we're going to be diving into. And I mentioned this last week at the end of the service, but let me mention again, our, our theme for this year is growing deeper. And I told you that in Romans 9 through 11, Paul is going to take us deeper in our thinking. In Romans 12 through 16, he's going to take us deeper in our worship or in our Christian living. And it's important to see this, that, that Paul in Romans chapter 9 through 11 is going to take us deeper into our thinking. He's going to talk about some of the most profound and important doctrines in the Christian faith. He's going to dive deep into controversial topics, debated topics like predestination and election. It's a section that is rich with thoughts of God's sovereignty and power of God's choosing and God's not choosing. It is deeply theological, deeply controversial, and it's fascinating to me that before Paul wants us to grow in deep thinking, what we see in these verses is that Paul wants us to grow in deep feeling. I mean, we just read, we read the verses. Can you, can you not hear the heart of the Apostle Paul? The anguish, the sorrow, the pain, the passion, the longing. And it's so important to see that because some of us, we, we're really excited about getting into the theology here, and, and that's great. I'm excited too. But what we need to see, and this, by the way, is proven because Paul bookends Romans 9 through 11 in a fascinating way. All of the deep thoughts of God, all of the deep theology of God is supposed to stir deep emotions for God, deep affection for God. 
Paul shows us that. He bookends this passage at the beginning of chapter 9, talking about his heart for the lost. And at the very end, you can turn there to Romans chapter 11. Just notice this. As Paul labors to lay out all of this great theology before he ever gets into the, the practical Christian living, he lays out the beauty and the depths of the gospel. And then listen to what he says in verse 33 of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. You see, Paul gets to the end of all the depths of these riches and his heart just erodes erupts with passionate, emotional praise to God who is worthy of all honor, of all glory. See, when Paul thinks about the gospel and all of its depths and all of its complexity and profundity and all of these great doctrines of predestination and election, it doesn't produce anger or resentment it produces a heart for God. And as we see this morning, it produces a heart for the lost. And we cannot lose sight of this reality as we enter into the depths of this section of Scripture. All knowledge and truth of God and the gospel, listen, is worthless if it does not affect your heart and does not change your life. And before we begin to grow again deep in our thinking, we must first grow deep in our feeling. Feeling that is, yes, informed by truth, but it is feeling, it is emotion, it is passion, it is affection. Nonetheless, before Paul goes after our head, he goes after our heart. And what we see in Paul here and what we must embody in our lives is a heart for the lost. And I want to look at three aspects of a heart for the lost so that we're able to cultivate that in our life. We're able to look at Paul and we're able to say, Lord, make this my heart. First, what I want you to see is this. A heart for the lost means that we must have a sincere heart. It's fascinating how Paul begins, isn't it? He bends over backwards. He goes to great lengths to demonstrate that he is speaking the truth, that he's being honest, that he's not lying. I mean, in three separate ways, he says the same thing. I, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. It's like he's taken the stand and he's put his hand on the Bible and he's declared an oath before God and he's promising to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Why is he doing this here? Why does he feel the need to go to such great lengths to demonstrate the, the sincerity or genuineness of what he is about to say? Well, I want you to think for a moment about how Paul has just walked the Jews through some fascinating realities in Romans 1 through 8. Remember, this is a letter. They would have read this likely in one sitting. And so as they've read through chapters 1 through 8, Paul has, has spoken often about the Jews and the reality of what it means to be Jewish, 
And what he's fundamentally done is he's challenged the common Jewish conception of how God saves people, especially of how he saves the Jews. You see, there were many Jews at the time that Paul was writing who had placed their hope in being Jewish. They thought that being Jewish, ethnically Jewish, meant that somehow they were ultimately saved by God. They had put their hope in the law. They had put their hope in circumcision. They had put their hope in being children of Abraham. And Paul has systematically blown up all of their misunderstandings about all of those realities. He's just dismantled them. Paul's in effect saying, listen, your Jewish heritage doesn't ultimately matter. It doesn't actually get you anywhere with God. It certainly doesn't save you. It doesn't provide any righteousness, for there is no righteousness that can be produced from the law. And instead, Paul has gone to great lengths to demonstrate that the gospel is actually for all who believe. They're they're given a righteousness that's not their own by faith in Jesus Christ. And and he said that it goes from the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And what he's trying to demonstrate throughout this letter is that it makes no difference. You're Jew, you're Greek, you're slave, you're free, you're male, you're female. It doesn't matter what you are, you come into the kingdom of God the same way. And then in Romans chapter 8, he's laid out the astounding assurance of the gospel. He's talked about the the, the beauty of the security that the people of God can have. Everybody who believes is given this wonderful gospel security and assurance. I mean, Romans chapter 8 is just magnificent. And as you read through it, he's talking about how, you know, we were predestined, and we were chosen, and we were elected, we were called, we were saved. Romans chapter 8 is essentially a list of all the privileges of being chosen by God, and they're all anchored in the promise of God. And, and Romans 8 begins, you know, with no condemnation, and it ends with no separation. There's this magnificent hope. You did nothing to earn your salvation. You can do nothing to lose your salvation. And this begs the question for the Jewish people, so what about the Jews? I mean, weren't, weren't they promised the very same things? You can imagine the, the Jew standing there saying, Paul, we have had all of the privileges that you mentioned in Romans chapter 8. They were all ours. I mean, just look at verses 4 and 5. And all these privileges, Paul, they are so great that if we are lost, then that means God has failed. It means that God doesn't keep his word. How can we trust, Paul, that what you're saying in Romans chapter 8 is true for us? This is the dilemma that they are facing. And what he's going to say in the rest of Romans chapter 9 through 11 is he's going to begin to unfold. He's he's really going to give what's called a theodicy. That's a fancy term for a defense of God. He is going to defend the character of God, the justice of God, the choosing of God, He's going to defend God in a sense. And and listen, oftentimes, and I know this is true, you can kind of resonate with this, oftentimes when you hear about these great doctrines of the faith, many people respond like this, well, that just seems so cold, it seems so calculated, it seems like God is indifferent towards the lost and humanity, and a lot of these doctrines, listen, they can grate upon our, our natural, or excuse me, our fallen human kind of disposition. It seems like 
It seems like God isn't really worthy of being trusted if this is what he's like. And so Paul comes along with these three statements, and he wants them to know that his heart for the lost is sincere, and what he's about to say about God is the absolute truth, and, and it is a sincere, listen, and it's, it's so true, it's so right, and Paul, Paul believes it so deeply, and what it's going to express is God does have a sincere heart for the lost, and Paul is simply saying, I, I too have a desperate, a sincere heart for the lost. And so let me just ask you, Reno, as you're thinking about this right now, how is your heart towards the lost? Do you have a sincere heart for the lost? I want you to ask yourself that question right now. It's really important that you let this kind of settle in your heart. Do you have a sincere heart for the lost? Do we as a church have a sincere heart for the lost? Of course we do, Ian. It's the first part of our mission statement, right? Right, church? Lost people saved. It's right there. And if we say it, it must be so, right? Wrong. I wonder, I'm, and I'm serious, I've been doing a lot of introspecting this this week, and God has really used this passage of Scripture in a really sweet way in my own life to force me to ask this question. Ian, do you really have a sincere heart for the lost right now at this point in your life? How sincere are you about reaching the lost? How concerned are you about those who are dead in their trespasses in sin and without hope in this world because they do not know Jesus Christ? How sincere are you? And God has caused me to kind of step back and look at our church and ask the same question as we evaluate our church together even right now, do we truly, do we truly believe what we say? Do we practice what we preach? Do we actually have a genuine, sincere heart for the lost? I mean, think about it like this. If, if I told you right now, if I stood up here and I said, listen, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I love my wife. She's sitting right there, which I do. And then you said to me, well, Ian, when was the last time you told her that or showed her that by doing something practical for her, a demonstration of that love? And I said to you, hmm, that's a great question. I'm not sure. It's really been a busy and, and hard 16 months. It's probably 16 months ago. What would you say? You would say, Ian, get your life right. Now, what if I told you that I love the lost? That I really, I really love the lost and I want to see lost people saved. But then I told you right now that I haven't shared or told them of the love of God in Christ Jesus in 16 months. What would you say to me? That's not true, by the way, but what would you say? You say, Ian, you need to get your life right. You want to know how you're doing in this? You, you want to know if you have a sincere heart for the lost right now at this moment? I'm not saying that you've never had a sincere heart for the Lord, and some of you really do have a sincere heart for the Lord, but let me just ask you a question, maybe to draw this out of your own heart. Who was the last person right now, who was the last person you shared Christ with? I know, right? 
convicting. It's easy to come here every Sunday and declare our faith to one another. It's hard to open our mouth and declare our faith to our unbelieving neighbor. You see, so what Paul is trying to express is what we ought to embody, what we desperately need. We need what Paul has right here. We need a sincere, a genuine heart for the lost. And what does this sincere heart look like? That's the question. Where does it come from? It comes from this next right here, a broken heart. A sincere heart for the, the lost is it's a byproduct of a broken heart for the lost. Look at what Paul says in chapter 2. Or verse 2, excuse me, he says that I have, just listen to this, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I mean, these terms, don't, don't they express such deep brokenness? This, this, is, this is Paul describing emotional devastation. It is great sorrow. It's not a small sorrow. It's not a little sorrow. It's, it's not trivial sorrow. It is great sorrow. It's all-encompassing sorrow. And beyond that, it is an unceasing anguish. Paul is saying, I, I am always feeling this burden. This is constantly weighing on me. The condition of people who are lost in their sins is always before me. And it produces in my heart such anguish. One commentator said this, I thought it was so well said. He said this, those who truly love and identify with the lost bear a burden that can reduce the one who cares to despair. You know, the truth is we grieve the loss of many things, don't we? In life, we we grieve the loss of all kinds of different things. But typically, we grieve the loss of that which we value most, or let me say it like this, we grieve most the loss of that which we value most. And it makes logical sense, doesn't it? There's a new movie that was released on Netflix. Um, It's called Worth, and it's kind of in light of of the 9-11 attacks. And um, and kind of the premise of the movie is based on a true story. It's about this lawyer who is hired, ends up being pro bono, but by the government of the United States in the wake of the terrorist attack from 9-11, and his sole job is to figure out how to compensate the families of those who had lost loved ones in the terrorist attack. And part of his main objective with his team is to determine, listen, this question, how much is a life worth? It's a fascinating question. How much is a life worth? What what is a life worth? We actually biblically don't have to search too far to find the answer for that. And in fact, Jesus himself tells us the answer for that when he says this, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? And while Jesus is talking about the reality of salvation, it doesn't matter what you accumulate in this life, it doesn't matter if you gain the whole world What matters is your soul, the reality of your soul. But can you see this? In Jesus' one single statement, what he is actually saying is that one single soul is worth more than the entire created world. Why? Well, because everything 
in this world is temporal and it's fleeting. Even this very earthly existence, this physical world that we are living on right now, it too is temporary and will one day be fully purged with fire and recreated into a new and glorious physical earth. But what we have right now is temporary, it's fleeting, but listen, Every single soul is eternal and will exist forever and ever and ever. C.S. Lewis put it so helpfully like this. He said this, you have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. But that doesn't actually answer the question, does it? How much is a single soul worth? We know, okay, it's worth more than this world and all the treasures in it, but it doesn't actually give us the answer. I I was thinking about it like this. In real estate or in, in other industries, they say that the value of a home or a product is determined by whatever somebody is willing to pay for it, right? It doesn't matter how much it costs to build it, doesn't matter the cost of the materials, at some point, the value is ultimately determined by whatever someone is willing to pay for it. And and church, listen to this, the value of every soul is determined by what God himself is willing to pay for it. Every soul is so infinitely precious and valuable that the cost to redeem just one soul from eternal damnation is the payment of the precious, priceless, eternal Son of God. So that while salvation is a free gift that is offered to you at no charge, your salvation was not free. It cost God everything for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And you see, Paul's sorrow and anguish is simply, is it not a reflection of the very heart of Jesus Christ? I mean, Jesus, who, who in the, the New Testament Gospels, who wept over Jerusalem, who declared his longing to gather the very people who would kill him under his wings of mercy, if only they would repent. He, he prayed for their forgiveness. Or, or in John 11, when Jesus comes to you know, um, Bethany and he goes there to see Mary and Martha because their brother Lazarus had died, and we read that Jesus wept. Listen, wept, yes, over the sorrow and grief uh, that his friend had died and his friends were, were in agony over that reality. But listen, when Jesus wept in that scene, Jesus is weeping over the reality of sin and the brokenness of our world. He is looking at the reality of death and he is declaring it was not meant to be this way from the beginning. The death and the brokenness and all of the horrors of eternal suffering 
consequence of sin. And it is a heart here of Jesus that is broken because it understands, listen, the consequences of sin. And it has experienced the eternal love of God through the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, if we're going to have a heart for the lost, our hearts must break for the lost. So how do we cultivate this? I mean, I mean our hearts are just going to just break on their own, typically. How do we as, as believers cultivate this? Let me give you just some practical ways to do this in your own life and maybe to, to practice regularly in your life. First, do this. Think often of the horrors of hell. Listen, there's a reason that Jesus talks more in the Scriptures about hell than He does even about the reality of heaven. And hell, by the way, is not the absence of God. Do you realize that? God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. He is present in different ways in different places, but God is present everywhere. Hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the presence of God's wrath and judgment against sin. And when you read about the descriptions of hell in the New Testament, you read things like fire and brimstone, a place where the worm never dies, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I know some of you are like, well, I think that's metaphorical. I think that's just, that's not really what it is. It's more metaphorical, it's symbolic and imagery. And I'll grant you, maybe that's, maybe that's true. But if that's true, I'll, I'll kind of go back to C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said, if it's true that those are simply metaphors or symbols of hell, then surely the real thing is far worse than anything we can possibly imagine. Secondly, think of the joy of salvation. You know, I think part of what, what stirs Paul's heart as he thinks about the lost is he knows, right? And especially when he thinks about the Jews. You know what Paul's thinking? I was you. I was you. I, I had everything you had. I was the Jew of Jews, right? Like, I was a Pharisee. I, according to I was zealous. I mean, I was doing everything you were doing. I thought the way you thought. And then one day, I was on my way, thinking I was honoring God, going to persecute the church of Jesus Christ, and God stopped me dead in my tracks. He blinded me with the glory and the brilliance of His Son, Jesus Christ. He arrested my heart. He showed me what I truly deserved, and He gave me grace. He rescued me. And I just, I just think as we think of the horrors of hell, we need to remember that that too was once the path that you and I were walking on. We were, we were storming our way there, running towards the gates of hell, and God in His kindness and grace stopped us dead in our tracks. He convicted us of sin. He broke us of sin. He showed us the hope of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ, the gift of forgiveness of sins and restoration to the Father. And the joy that comes from salvation, I mean, I love Psalm 1611. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I think Paul's just like, man, I just, I know what they, where they're heading, and I know what they could have. Let me give you a third thing to do. Pray for brokenness. I, I think, you know, I love, here's, I love, we're a church that loves the truth, we love the Bible, we, we do, and, and we're, you know, I think that's kind of one of our stronger, if I can just humbly say that, I think that's one of our stronger points as a church, but, but I'll tell you this, I think one of our weaker points is our willingness to pray. 
and our willingness maybe specifically to pray for the lost. I think there's a time, listen, I think there's a time to put the Bibles in one sense, like read the Bible. I mean, be careful how I say this. Some of you like going to, don't, I don't need any emails today, okay? I don't need you, nobody storming the stage afterwards. You know how I feel about the word of God. You know how important it is. There's a time, listen, I think there's a time and a place to push the Bible up and to devote more time to prayer. Not push the Bible away. Read it, but then get fast to the work of prayer. You know what? One of the things that I, I want to say, like as a church, one of the things we need to get better at is praying um, for the lost. I need, I need to get better at this. God's been convicting me. I need to pray for the lost more. One of the things we've tried to do in our family is we've tried to, you know, we have a night of the week where we pray for different things, and we don't always do it perfectly and all that, but, but we got Witness Wednesdays where we're intentionally trying to pray for our, our neighbors and people that are in our lives that we, we know need Jesus. But as a church, listen, as a church, we need to get committed to praying for the lost. We say it's the first part of our mission statement. And we demonstrate that not only in doing it, we demonstrate it in praying for it, praying for brokenness and praying for the lost, those two things. And so here's what, here's what I want to say to you. Um, I was sitting just this, this kind of this morning as, as Matt was talking about the prayer and praise night, which is next week, right? Next week. Is that right? A couple weeks later. Whenever it is. Listen, we are devoting the whole night to praying for the lost, to praying for brokenness over the lost. And so here's what I want to say to you. I, I, I want you to demonstrate your love for the lost as a church and your commitment to pray for the lost by committing to being there together. And we are going to storm the throne of grace. We are going to petition the Lord. I want you to bring lists of people in your life, family members, friends, neighbors, coworkers, and we are going to go to God together. And we are going to get on our face before the Lord and pray for God to miraculously intervene in their lives and to pray for God to produce a supernatural brokenness in our hearts. And not something that's temporary or fleeting, but something that is ongoing. I mean, I was writing these words so convicted, and just the Lord just convicted. There was tears streaming down my face as I was thinking about lost people. And I, all I can think is that God, keep me in this place. Keep me right here. Because truthfully, honestly, in all sincerity, I'm not always there. And I'm not there nearly enough as I need to be. Pray for brokenness. Pray for the lost. Maybe we, maybe we need to get on our knees, get in our prayer closets, and keep praying and just until the Lord breaks us and until we have tears streaming down our face for the lost. But a heart for the lost must be, yes, sincere, and it must be broken, but lastly, it must be this. It must be desperate. We need a desperate heart. And what Paul says here is so astounding. He says this in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And, and did you hear how Paul expresses this brokenness and the sincerity of his heart? Paul says, I would trade places with them if I could. I would suffer the horrors of hell if it meant that my Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ would, would gain Christ, would gain salvation. I would give it up if I could. Paul hurt so much at the thought of Israel's rejection of Christ 
He was willing to forego the glories of heaven and suffer damnation if that would bring their salvation. Now listen, he knows this is impossible. I mean, even the way he says this, I could wish that I myself. He knows, he knows it's not possible. It's like Moses wishing that God would blot his name out of the book of life. But can you just see this? His emotions were so intensely real here. And the expression of his heart is simply this, I would give up anything to see people come to know Jesus Christ. Let me say that again, listen. I would give up anything to see people come to know Jesus Christ. Why? How? How can he say this? Why does he, he just, he loved them because he knew the joy of loving and being loved by his Savior. And for Paul, especially as, as he looks at the Jews, listen, his hurt is intensified by his awareness of their great privileges. Right? That's why he lists in verse 4 and 5 these, these um, unbelievable privileges that he had. And he's done this earlier in the book of Romans as well. And he's saying, like, he's looking at all these privileges, and here's what his heart's doing. He's like, I'm looking at all these unbelievable privileges. They were so close to God. They had everything they needed to know and embrace Jesus Christ, and yet they've missed the point of them all. All of their adoption, all of the covenants, all of the promises, everything the patriarchs ever said was intended always and only to point them to Jesus Christ. They had it all at their fingertips, and they missed him, Jesus, who is God over all. All of their worship system, all of the law, everything was pointing to Jesus, and they could not see it. And he is in anguish and sorrow. You know, the closest, as I thought about this, like, how, how can we relate to this? And I, like, the context is Paul with the Jews, right, who had all these privileges. And I know what we're doing is we're applying this, I think rightly so, to having a heart for anyone who is lost. But the Jews were unique. They had things that the Gentiles didn't have. That's part of what Paul is drawing out. The only real parallel, or the great, maybe the greatest parallel I can think of, maybe, maybe I have two in my mind right now. One is this. One is a parent a Christian parent who's raised their kids in the faith. And they've labored to preach the gospel, to read the scriptures, to point them to Jesus and everything they did. Faithfully brought them to church every single Sunday, had them involved in youth group, served people, loved people, did everything they possibly could. And now they're watching their child flat out reject the Christian faith. And I know some of you have maybe experienced that or are experiencing that right now, and there's something that goes on, isn't there? And I, I know this, and as, as, even with my own kids, I sense this in my own heart. There's nothing I wouldn't give so that my, my kids would come. There's nothing I wouldn't give. If I could give up my own salvation so that they could come to know Jesus, I would. But I can't. I can't. And you know, and, and I see this in the church. 
There's people who have come. I can see over the years, people who have come over the years, they've sat where you're sitting, they've heard what you've heard, they've been involved in small groups, they've come every single Sunday, they've sat here, and at some point, they've been exposed to all the privileges and blessings of what it means to taste and see that the Lord is good, to sit amongst the people of God, to sit amongst the presence of God, and yet they can walk out those doors one day and say, I'm done and I'm never coming back. There's anguish, there's sorrow, it's heartbreaking. You see, that's what, that's what love does, doesn't it? Martin Luther said this, he said, love is not only pure joy and delight, but also great and deep heaviness of heart and sorrow. The ache for people to know Jesus And the fact that we don't ache and have any sorrow is maybe a sign that we simply don't love. And Paul says that he, he would trade places with them. He, he means it. His desperation embodies, listen, the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul, listen, Paul, Paul doesn't just say this. He lived like this. His ministry embodies the ministry of Jesus Christ. Paul gave everything of himself. You just, you read through, you read through his letters, you read through the book of Acts, Paul gave himself to the work of the ministry so that, so that some might come to know Jesus. And he says this, he says, look, to the Jew, I became a Jew so that I might win the Jew. To those without the law, I became as one without the law so that I might win those without the law. I, I, I saw all my rights and freedoms in Jesus Christ. I was at liberty to do these things and I was willing to lay them down if it meant this, I could win some to him. Paul says, listen, I went to great lengths in my own personal life. I strove for holiness. I beat my body. I made it my slave so that after I preached to others, I might, self might not be disqualified. Paul talks about bearing the marks of a disciple on his body. He had sleepless nights. Think about what he gave up. Sleepless nights, imprisonments, beatings, robbed, stoned, left for dead. So much so, at the very end of his life, in first, or Second Timothy, he says this, that I am being poured out as a drink offering. Even to the bitter end, Paul is giving of himself. He's giving his whole life to the cause of Christ and to the gospel of Jesus Christ so that by any means, biblically speaking, he might save some. What are you giving up to see others come to know Jesus Christ? This is convicting stuff. I know. I know it is. But don't run from it. What are you giving up right now to see others come? What are you intentionally sacrificing so that you might strive harder to win some time? Money? your own comfort or convenience? I'll just tell you this. I, I had to pause multiple times this week in studying and writing this and simply get on my knees and repent. Even now I feel the weight of this because I see the gap in my own life. And I, I found myself thinking about this, this season that we've been in, this never-ending season. Maybe we should stop calling it a season. And you know, here's what I was thinking about. It's never been easier to avoid people. It's, it's never been easier to be an introvert. It's actually never, fascinatingly, it's never been easier to be more unconcerned about other people. And my greatest concern during this season is that we have squandered time and opportunities. 
who or what exactly is setting the agenda for what we think and speak about? You want to know what it is right now? It's the news. It's the news. That's, that's what's set. And in almost every conversation I have, it comes back to what's going on in the world. It's the news. It's not the Bible. And it's not the gospel. The Bible is largely silent in our heads. And the sad part is, it is, it is, this is, it's ironic, it's actually never been easier to be a witness for Jesus Christ. If we talked half as much about Christ than we do about COVID, who knows what God might do? I mean, how about this? How about every time somebody talks to us about a vaccine passport, we tell 10 people about their need for a heavenly passport? We tell them about their need come to know Jesus Christ because, listen, because this world is not our home. And there is a better city that is yet to come. And there is only one way to enter that city. And listen, in this, this season, our, our world, it's living in chaos and fear. I mean, fear of a virus, fear of a vaccine, fear of government. But what does the Scripture say, Church? Our God has not given us a spirit of fear, amen, but a spirit, what? A power of love, and here's a real good one for us right now, of self-control. So where is that? That's the question. Where is that in the church? We, sadly, don't look a whole lot different from the world right now, but the truth is, if we are in Christ... And we have the hope of the gospel. We don't fear disease. We don't fear death. We don't fear the government. We don't fear anything else in all of creation because we serve the one who has conquered sin and death. And yet our Christian testimony has often in this season been, been one, listen, one that is man, filled with angry rants against government or those on different sides of issues Christians have been filled with anxiety and worry, all kinds of fear. And listen, church, it needs to stop. Rise up, church. Remember who you are. Remember what God has done. Remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the people of hope. When all the world is filled with fear, we're the people with hope. When all the world is confused, we know the straight and narrow path to the heavenly city. When all the world is angry and hostile, we know the peace of Christ that surpasses everything. I wonder, church, I wonder maybe this morning, you're like, well, what do I do? Maybe it's time to repent. Repent of our misplaced focus. To set our heart and mind on things above once more, not things below. Can I, can I remind you, church, this is not the kingdom. If you're, if, you, if you're trying to make this earth the kingdom, listen, you're going to be sadly disappointed. This is not the kingdom. We are sojourners and exiles. We're strangers here. This right here, okay, this church, right, I mean, literally right here in this moment, this is the closest thing you're going to get to heaven before you're actually there. This is an embassy, the church of Jesus Christ. Let's stop living like we're already in the kingdom. Paul says, Paul says he looks at this, the law, I'd trade places with them if I could. He says, I mean, this is a desperate heart. 
But can I just say this? That's a gospel heart. And like Paul, we can't, we can't trade places with the lost. We, we can't be cursed or cut off so that they might be saved. But listen, listen, church, we can point them to the one who was. Do you see all Paul is doing? Paul is saying, I'm trying to be like Jesus, but I can't be, so I'm going to point them to Jesus. Because, church, there is one who was cursed, right, for us, isn't there? For cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. There was one who was put on a cross and who suffered the curse of sin for us, who suffered the wrath of God for us, who paid the penalty in full. There was one who was cut off. He hung on the cross and he declared, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cut off, so to speak, so that we could be brought in. For our sake, he became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul longed for his fellow kinsmen, according to the flesh, to see that this was always God's desire for them and all of their privileges. It was to see Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Why are we more desperate to fight for our rights and freedoms than to fight for the souls of people who will die in their sins and spend eternity in hell? Why are we more anxious about the state of our world than we are about the state of lost sinners? Why are we so busy complaining about our circumstances instead of proclaiming our Savior? I was reading Esther this week, and I, you, know, you, know, you all know that you know, Mordecai comes alongside, or Uncle Mordecai comes up and says, who knows? Maybe God has placed you in the kingdom, like right now for this very purpose, for such a time as this. Church, listen, this is our time. This is our time. God has put us, the church of the living God, filled with resurrection hope right here, right now, in this point of history, under these circumstances, at this place, God, God has chosen, listen, for such a time as this, to use us. Why not us, right? Why not us and why not now? Somebody has to stand up and declare the hope that's found in Jesus. Why not us? Why not now? It is our time to proclaim him. And as Charles Spurgeon once said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. May it be so. Let's pray.